Our scripture reading is from Jeremiah 7, 1 to 11. And this is found on page 634 to 635 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take the one in front of you as a gift from us. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods in your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other guys, gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Megan. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve here as the campus pastor at the Brookside campus. And we're really glad that you're here this morning. And uh, also know that if, uh, not only if you're coming to church alone, but even if you're just as checking out church for the first time or coming back to church the first time, this can maybe feel like a different or kind of a lonely space. It's not easy to walk into a church for the first time. So if you've done that this morning, thanks so much for, for doing that. And hopefully you find this to be a community of people uh, who will genuinely love and care for you uh, as a person wherever you're at and on your journey this morning. So um, as we pause uh, here, I'd love to pray um, as we open up and look at this passage of Scripture that Megan's just read for us this morning. It's something we do each week. It's just a moment to acknowledge that God is speaking to us and that uh, really, in a sense, all prayer is answering God's speech. But we're He's spoken first. We want to ask him to help us to respond well. Uh, and so we, you know, God has been speaking and moving uh, through the music that we've sung, the prayers that we've heard prayed. Uh, and we just want to continue asking him now to help us to respond well to him as he speaks to us through his word. So let's do that right now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken first, uh, that we, uh, every prayer that we utter is always a response ultimately to something that you've already said. You're the first one to speak. And we just pray now that our response um, in our words and ultimately in our lives uh, would bring uh, honor to you and joy to us, that those two things are, are always ultimately bound up together, our joy and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that there is a lie that is being told to each and every one of us. It's a lie that's more, more deadly, more pernicious than any sort of fake news that's out there. Um, that it's more damaging to us as people. Uh, it, it takes a lot of different forms. And it comes to us in many uh, different places and from many different sources. But at the core, it, it's always the same. 
And if we don't know what to look for, it has the potential to draw any of us in, and we're vulnerable to its allure. Now, uh, this morning, I'm even thinking specifically of those of us who consider ourselves churchgoers, Christians. Um, You may be here this morning and and you're just checking out, or you're here with a family member or friend, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, uh, you know, you just kind of listen in to where are we as religious kind of people vulnerable in this. Okay, this is something uh, that's particularly a lie that people who would claim to be religious are, are in danger of believing. And, and what is it? Well, the lie is that God just wants something from you. That God just wants something from you. That God wants my prayers. Uh, God just wants my Sunday mornings. God wants some of my money. God wants me to feel guilty for at least a little while after I do something wrong. Um, that God wants 30 minutes of Bible reading each day. That God just wants something from me. And we're in a series in the book of Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet is one of these books of the Bible. We're calling this series Life, a task too big for us. And what we've seen in the last two weeks is that God is calling us to a life that is, it requires a faithfulness, a kind of engagement that is just too much for us on our own, that requires constant dependence on Him that will lead us into places of suffering and hardship at times. But there are those who would tell you different. There are those who would say, God doesn't demand that much from you. He hasn't set the bar that high. He just wants something from you. But it's a lie. And, and it's a lie, though, that can take a couple of different forms. There's, there's sort of a more progressive uh, form of this lie uh, that says God doesn't really require that much of you. He isn't asking you to change. Um, he just wants you to be true to yourself. That's all that God once ultimately. Um, God is love. He would never judge. Just be dear to yourself. That's what God wants from you. (coughs) But there's also a a more conservative form of this that says God just wants certain other things from you. Sort of avoiding the the biggie sins, right? Just so as long as you, you know, as long as you don't have sex outside of marriage and and you don't get drunk on the weekends and and you don't say the F word or GD, then, then, then God is is happy with you. God just wants you to be good. That's, that's all he wants from you. You can just be basically kind of moral. That's, that's what he wants from you. <clears throat> now those two things may look very different. They do look very different in practice. But at the core, they're the same lie. That God just wants something from you. But, but the truth, indeed the good news of the gospel, as we'll see this morning, is that God doesn't just want something from you. He wants you. He wants all of you. Your, your love and affection, your obedience and your joy, your Sunday mornings and your Friday nights, your kids, your house and your car, your youth and your retirement, your school nights and your party nights, Christmas break and summer break, your vacation and your normal routine. God doesn't just want something from you. He wants you. And that is a task that is, that is too big for us. And don't listen to anyone who tells you any different on that. <clears throat> this morning as we look at Jeremiah chapter 7, we're going to see how God's people fell into the trap of believing that God just wanted something from them. And we're going to see three things that we have to avoid 
in order to not repeat that same mistake, in order to keep us from believing the lie that God just wants something from us, that there's just sort of a religious part of our life that he's interested in. So let's take a look. You see, the last two weeks, <coughs> we looked at Jeremiah chapter 1. <clears throat> and in Jeremiah chapter 1, we see God call this person, Jeremiah, and call him to be a prophet. Now, a prophet is simply someone who speaks God's words to God's people. And so God uniquely calls him to be the voice of God to his people. And God gives Jeremiah the assurance that he would be with him, even in the midst of a life of trouble and hardship. And now here in Jeremiah 7, we're introduced to the message that God has given him to deliver to the people. So in chapters 1 through 24 of the book of Jeremiah, it is a message of accusation and warning. These are sobering chapters of Jeremiah. They're a message that Jeremiah has for God's people from God himself is one of accusation and warning. And it's a message that shocked Jeremiah's listeners so much. It, it, it so offended their sensibilities and their beliefs that they actually, they immediately wanted to kill Jeremiah after he gave this sermon. We find this out in Jeremiah chapter 26. I guess on the plus side, Jeremiah at least knew they were listening to the sermon. I mean, that's one response, uh, wanting to murder the preacher, uh, but at least he knew they, they heard. They were responding, maybe not how he had hoped, but they, they had a response. They understood what he was saying. And this is how the sermon begins in chapter 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. You're going to see that formula a lot in the book of Jeremiah. This idea of the word of the Lord came or the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah. And Judah is another name for God's people. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But all, all the people of Judah. Hear this word, who enter the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend, this is literally the idea of make good. Amend, make good your ways and your deeds. And I will let you dwell in this place. And then there's a warning. Do not trust in these deceptive words. Don't believe the lie. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See, Jeremiah chapter 7, it's a, it's a sermon. It's a sermon that Jeremiah gave at the temple gate. So imagine you're walking into church this morning through the, the doors over here and someone's standing there on the steps giving a sermon as you're coming to church. That's what Jeremiah's doing. People are coming to the temple to worship and Jeremiah's standing there at the gate giving this message. And we actually don't get the narrative around what was happening until chapter 26. And, and this is because you may remember if you were here with us a few weeks ago that Jeremiah isn't a, a narrative kind of a story with a beginning, middle, and end kind of chronological order. It's an anthology. It's a collection of sermons and poems and narratives about Jeremiah's life that have been you know, pulled together. Um, and so it, it reads like a collection, an anthology. That's how it's designed. So you get the sermon here, but then you get the narrative about what was happening around the sermon later on in chapter 26. It's there that we find out after Jeremiah gives the sermon that they, they try to kill him. Um, Again, if you want more on how this book is put together, uh, you can go on our Facebook page. There's a great video from the Bible Project that kind of outlines the structure of the book. Or you can even just, if you just Google Jeremiah Bible Project, um, the YouTube video or 
their website will pop up. Really helpful video on how the book is, is structured and put together. Okay, so what's going on here, though, in this passage? Why is the sermon so offensive? Why does it elicit such a response from the people later on in chapter 26? Well, to understand this, you have to know a little bit of something about Israelite history. Now, I know when you say, and I say Israelite history, you, you're going to have trouble containing your excitement this morning. I just do your best uh, as we walk through a little Israelite history this morning. But this is really key to understanding what's happening here. If we don't have a little bit of the background, a little bit of context, this won't make sense. So first thing you need to know is uh, after King Solomon died. Now, King Solomon was the third king that Israel had. So you had King Saul first. He was the first king, followed by King David. And then David's son Solomon uh, came to the throne. Now, after Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel broke into two separate kingdoms. So you had part of the tribes who were up in the north. They're called Israel. They're referred to as Israel. And another part of the tribes in the south, they're referred to as Judah. All Israelites, all God's people, but you have two different kingdoms under two different kings. And if you were with us over the summer, you may remember we looked at the series where we talked about Elijah, the prophet Elijah, and the king Ahab. That all took place in the northern kingdom called Israel. That was all in the north. And things eventually got so bad in the north Ahab was a really wicked king, that God allowed the Assyrian army to come in and conquer the northern kingdom. So they're gone. They've been taken away into exile, completely wiped out. So the only part that remains is the southern kingdom referred to as Judah. Here's the second thing you need to know. That is, things were also really bad in the south a series of really, really evil kings, until you get to Manasseh, who's the absolute worst. He's the worst of all the kings in history of, of God's people. And he led them into the absolute worst practices of abandoning God, abandoning God. He actually set up all kinds of other idols inside the temple, um, even led people into child sacrifice. And all of this led to massive social injustice because how we worship affects all of our lives. Abuse of the poor, the vulnerable, religiously sanctioned prostitution. It's, it's hard to wrap your mind around how bad things had gotten in this place. God's people who are supposed to show a different way of life from their neighbors actually ended up looking just like an even worse than their pagan neighbors. But then all of a sudden you have a new king come onto the scene. Manasseh dies. His successor only lasts a really short matter of time. And then Josiah. And Josiah, he becomes king when he's just a boy. He's eight years old when he ascends to the throne. Just a boy. And one day as Josiah is growing up, on the throne, one of his court officials finds something in the archives. It's this old, dusty scroll, and they open it up and they begin to read it, and it's, it's a Torah scroll. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, the, the teaching, the law of the Lord, it's sometimes called this core foundation of what God... People hadn't looked at this in generations. 
And Josiah is, is stunned. He's like, we are in no way obeying this. We're, we're way out of line. And so Josiah immediately institutes all kinds of reforms, at least external ones. And so almost overnight, there's a change. All the idols are, are kicked out of the, the temple, these other statues. There's changes to the worship, all this kind of thing. What they did at the temple looked really different. Almost everything changed. But what they did outside the temple, in that regard, almost nothing changed. They started going to the temple. They started worshiping at the temple more in alignment with the law, with the teaching. But they didn't stop doing all the other stuff. They thought that since they began to give God some of their time and some of their money and some of their service at the temple, that God would always bless them and never allow them to be overthrown like their neighbors to the north. They believed the lie that God just wants something from you. They believed that God would never let them be overthrown by an enemy power because his temple was there. God would never let his temple be overthrown. So they just kept saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They believed the lie. A lie that God, all that God wants is for you to claim a promise without loving the person who made it. It was the lie of cheap grace. See, God doesn't just want something from you. He wants you. And I want to be very careful here that you don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Because your only hope in life and in death, my only hope in life and in death, is that we belong to God. We can do nothing to earn his favor. And when you receive in faith God's grace alone, you can be rescued and transformed. Salvation by grace alone is a sturdy, full-bodied, costly grace that invades every thought and action and meal and job and celebration and moment of our lives and transforms us and sets us free. But friends, there is a deadly counterfeit to this sort of robust salvation by grace alone. And it's called cheap grace. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian who confronted German Christians for largely going along with Hitler during World War II, who first coined this phrase, cheap grace. Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, cheap grace is a grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You see, cheap grace wants to claim a promise without loving the person who made the promise. Cheap grace says, well, I... I prayed a prayer once to ask Jesus into my heart, so I'm covered. It's our way of saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Cheap grace says uh, the temple of the Lord is here, so we don't have to worry. No matter what we do, God will, will always be faithful to his house. We will always be safe. It doesn't matter how we 
live. But cheap grace is a lie. And it is a lie that will kill you. Do not believe the lies of cheap grace. Don't don't trust in a prayer that you prayed or a date that you surrendered or a baptism certificate or a time you rededicated your life. Those are all great mile markers on your faith journey. Don't trust in them, though. They're not what rescue you. Trust and love Jesus. Love and obey and treasure Jesus. Grace that is real is grace that transforms us. You see, cheap grace treats God's promise like a winning lottery ticket. That that I turn in this ticket, I, I get all this money, and then I go away and just live my life how I always did before. But true grace is a matter of being adopted into a new family with, yes, an incredible inheritance of unimaginable wealth. But, but you don't just get that and then go off and live as you always did. No, you're, you're brought into this new family with new affections and loves and rhythms and practices and habits and a new identity. It's better than this cheap grace of a lottery ticket. It's a new family, a new identity. See, God doesn't just want something from you. He wants to adopt you into his family, to have all of you. Don't believe the lies of cheap grace. But how can you tell if you've bought into this kind of cheap grace? Well, in verses 5 through 11, Jeremiah shows us. Uh, look at what he writes as, as he continues the sermon, speaking God's words. God is going to tell the people, if you really want to know if you know me, you have to look outside of the temple, not inside the temple. If you want to know, God's going to tell me, if you want to know if you really know me, don't look at what you do inside the temple. Look at what you do outside the temple. Listen to verse 5. For if you truly amend, if you truly make good your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice, if you actually work for justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever." Behold, though you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house in the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, we're saved, only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, this temple, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Again, at this time in in Judah's history, in Israel's history, uh, injustice against the weakest of society was pervasive. And it was coupled with this kind of putrefying moral rot as well. So they came to the temple and they sang the right songs. They said the right prayers. They recited the right creeds. They they raised their hands in worship and they felt emotionally close to God at the temple when they were there. But then they left and nothing changed. In the practical, social, ethical, economic dimensions of their lives. 
They were still oppressing the weak and the vulnerable, the homeless and the familyless, the refugees, the immigrants. They, they participated in or, or supported by their silence, violence and corruption. They were still having sex with whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And yet somehow they thought that as long as they could go to the temple once a week and say, we're delivered, we're saved, that God would rescue them. But they just kept on doing the same things. God says, you've made my home, my house, the temple, a den of robbers. Don't you think I see that? You see, God doesn't just want something from you. He wants you. So don't look at Sunday to tell you if you know God. Because the, the cracks of cheap grace, they will always splinter out on Monday. If you want to know if you really know God, you can't just look at what you do and say at church on Sunday. You have to look at what you do the rest of the week. That's God's point here in these verses. And he wants all of it. He wants all of your week. In verses 5 through 7, I noticed this week as I was reading this text, in verses 5 through 7, uh, God sounds like a progressive who's concerned with all these social issues, right? The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the sojourner. But then in verses 9 through 10, he, he sounds like a conservative who's concerned with, with personal morality. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't worship other gods. This is one of the brilliant things about the text of Scripture. It always meets us where we, is and where we are and, and confronts us as well as affirms us. Wherever we're at, right? True grace brings both. True grace transforms us and makes us passionate about, about social justice. And true grace transforms us and makes us passionate about personal and interpersonal holiness and morality. Both of them together. You see, God doesn't just want something from you. God isn't a progressive or a conservative. He, he wants all of you. He doesn't just want a, a passion for social justice or an avoidance of certain sins. He wants you. He wants all of you. And, and so you can't just look at, at Sunday to tell you if you know God. You have to look at the whole of your life. But the temptation for all of us, and I feel this regularly, this temptation, is to want to keep back part of life that's just ours. You know, God, you can have most of it, but this part is going to be mine. You know, so we, we say things not verbally, but in the way we live, we say things like, well, God, you can have my whole week but Friday night after work is for me. Or God, you can have my, my whole life, but my sexual relationship with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, that, well, that's, that's mine. Or, or you can have my whole life, God, but, but don't ask me to do anything very inconvenient or difficult to help someone who's poor. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts this so well. He writes, you know, our temptation is to look eagerly for the minimum that will be accepted in our life with God. He says, we are in fact very like honest but reluctant taxpayers. 
We approve of an income tax in principle. We make our returns truthfully, but we dread a rise in the tax. We are very careful to pay no more than is necessary. And we hope, we very ardently hope that after we have paid it, there will still be enough left to live on. See, we think that God wants something from us. We may even think that he wants a lot from us. But we still hope that once we've given him that, that there's still part that's just ours. We sincerely hope that we can keep something for ourselves. But God doesn't just want something from you. He wants you. And anything less is deadly. Lewis continues in this essay. He says, What cannot be admitted... What must exist only as an undefeated but daily resisted enemy is the idea of something that is our own. Some area in which we are to be out of school, on which God has no claim. For he claims all because he is love and must bless. He cannot bless unless he has us. When we try to keep an area with in our, that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There is no bargaining with him. If you want to know if you really know God, you have to look at more than what you do on Sunday. What is your Monday through Saturday life telling you about your relationship with God? The words that you speak to your neighbor. And sometimes we think about loving our neighbor and we think of the people out there. You know, your neighbor are the people, their closest neighbor are the people you live with. Your kids, roommate, spouse, your coworkers. What are your words are you speaking to them? What words do you write on social media? What are your daydreams? Uh, what about your browsing history on your phone? And I don't just mean, you know, is there pornography in that history? But I mean, what does your search history tell you? The Google, the Google search field is what one author called the digital truth serum of our age. We, it shows us what we're pondering, what, what we're looking to buy, what we're afraid of, what we're obsessed with, what we're ashamed of. Just look through your browsing history. I, I really encourage you that this week. What does it tell you you've been thinking about, longing for, wanting to buy? what you're afraid of, what you're concerned about. What does your calendar tell you? What do your bank statements, your credit card statements tell you? What are, what are the things that you have debt related to? What, are you, what do your loans tell you about what you value, about what you love? If you want to know if you know God, you have to look beyond Sunday morning. God's people in Jeremiah, you see, they did all the right stuff at the temple. And then they went and lived bankrupt lives the rest of the week. You see, the glorious good news of the gospel is that it is for all of life. Often pastors have, have been at fault in perpetuating a lie that somehow God only cares about this moment or what you do when you're, when you're serving, but it's and I'm sorry if I've ever done that, but God cares about all of life. The gospel is good news for all of life. Don't settle for a Sunday-only faith. 
It's a ripoff. It won't lead you to life. In fact, just the opposite. Because God doesn't just want something from you. He wants you. He wants all of you. So, so don't believe the lies of cheap grace. Don't just look at Sunday to tell you if you know God. And there's one more thing we have to, to be aware of here. And we see it in the final three verses of our passage this morning. If you look at verses 12 through 15. And God is continuing to speak through Jeremiah to the people as they're coming into the temple. God says, go now to my place that was in Shiloh. Shiloh was in the northern kingdom. It's now been destroyed. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. And see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you, people of Judah, southern kingdom, have done all these things, declares the Lord. And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore I will do to this house, to this temple, that is called by my name, in which you trust, in which you come in and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did in Shiloh. I'm going to do the exact same thing as I did in Shiloh. I'm going to do here. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. So God is continuing to warn the people through Jeremiah. He says, don't think it can't happen to you. Again, the, the town of Shiloh is in the northern part of the kingdom. It was where God actually first had a sanctuary, a place where he dwelled with his people before the temple was built in Jerusalem. This was all, you know, when it was one unified kingdom. But that town of Shiloh, where God had first made his name to dwell, in the country there, had been completely conquered by the Assyrians. It was, God's, it was where God's people had first met with him and before the temple was constructed. And the people of, of the south are now saying that in Jerusalem, God would never do that to us because his temple's here. He wouldn't do to us what he did to Shiloh, what happened in Shiloh, because the temple is here. But God says, I'm going to do the exact same thing here. If you don't make good your ways, I'm going to take my presence away from here and send you out just as I did to them. See, God doesn't just want something from you. He wants you. So don't think it can't happen to you. Don't think that you can just give lip service to God's promises and his call on your life and expect that everything will be fine. The Apostle Paul, he was a New Testament church planter and leader, writes in a letter called Galatians in the New Testament. He writes these words in chapter 6, verse 7. He says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what's good. And at just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessings. So if we don't give up, don't think that it can't happen to you. God doesn't just want something from you. He wants you. Don't believe the lie that God doesn't care that much about the rest of your life. 
Don't believe the lie that he doesn't have a principle at work that you reap what you sow. That is literally the oldest lie in the book. It's the oldest lie in this book. If you go to page three of your Bible, it's the lie that the serpent tells to Eve in the garden. You will surely not die, Eve. It's the oldest lie. Those in Shiloh said, God is with us. His dwelling place was first here in Shiloh. We'll never get conquered. The people in Judah said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the, temple of the Lord is here. We'll never be conquered. And in every case, death resulted. It happened to them. It can happen to us. Don't ignore that reality. That, that's Jeremiah's point in this passage from beginning to end. God doesn't just want something from you. He wants you. And it's not too late for you and it's not too late for me. Why? Because there is something so much better than cheap grace that's available to you. Something so much better. This true, robust, costly grace that offers forgiveness. True grace that transforms. See, God wants all of you, and by his grace, he will have all of you. C.S. Lewis adds these words to the end of the essay, which I quoted for you earlier. He says, failures will be forgiven. And that is true. That is the grace that we celebrate every week. Failures will be forgiven. Of course, none of us do this perfectly. Of course, we're going to fail. Failures will be forgiven. It is acquiescence, Lewis says, that is fatal. The permitted, regularized presence of an area in ourselves which we still claim as our own. We may never, this side of death, Lewis says, drive the invader out of our territory, but we must be in the resistance, not in the Vichy government. Lewis was writing here just after World War II. He's talking about France. Right, that was occupied by the Nazis, and there was a, a government that was collaborating with the Nazis. He says, we have to be in the resistance, not in the collaboration government with the forces of evil. He says, there will never be a moment in our lives where we'll completely be free, this side of death and transformation of this enemy. But we have to not acquiesce. We have to continue to fight. Failures will be forgiven. Yes, it is acquiescence that's fatal. There is a better grace than cheap grace, which is no grace at all. A grace that has the power to change you. And it's available to you because Jesus, the true and better temple and the true and better sacrifice, received the punishment that you and I deserve that he might adopt us into his family because he loves you. And Jesus actually in the New Testament, he quotes this very passage from Jeremiah chapter 7 when he cleanses the temple of his day. He quotes this verse about, you've made my house a den of thieves. And in that moment, why the people get so angry when Jesus does that is because they recognize he is setting himself up as the true temple. Jesus says, my body is the temple. I'm the place where you come for forgiveness and transformation. He's the true and better temple, the true and better sacrifice. And he doesn't just want something from you. He wants all of you.
And there is no greater joy to be found than when you are his. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you show us this morning those places in our lives where we have still laid claim as our own. We are so good at self-deception. I know I am. Would you show me, show each one of us those places where we are trying to keep something back? Would you show us how we're just trying to keep back an area of death in our lives? Would you liberate us from the lies of cheap grace? May we drink deeply and richly from the fountain of true grace and life offered in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.